Good morning, church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts, Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you would uh, turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we do have some paperback Bibles that are nearby you there on the benches. We'd love it if you grab that. Turn with us to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 43, so the last two episodes in that chapter as we continue our sermon series entitled Witnesses, a study in the book of Acts, where we see the way that God is raising up these disciples to be witnesses to himself, commissioned as is at the start of the church to bear witness to Christ and his gospel. Now, as we get to the end of Acts chapter 9 here, we turn briefly from Paul, who has been the content of most of Acts chapter 9 up to this point, the conversion of Paul and his uh, going immediately on about the mission that the Lord sent him on, a mission to preach the gospel, a mission that will take him to the Gentiles. And we turn briefly from Paul now in these last two episodes of the chapter to Peter. And we're going to stay with Peter for a little while for the next few chapters or so. And we're going to see the way that the Lord is commissioning through Peter the church to go to the Gentiles as well. And we see Peter going there here in our passage this morning. Now, we're going to see two miracles take place in this section. Peter performs three miracles in Acts. We saw one of them when we studied Acts chapter 3, healing a man lame from birth. And then today we're going to see him heal a bedridden Aeneas who'd been paralyzed for eight years and stuck in bed in that way. And then we're going to see him raise Dorcas to life, a woman also called by the name Tabitha. Now, when we studied Acts chapter 3, when Peter healed that man who was lame from birth, we observed that the miracles that were being performed there were visible evidence of the Lord's authority to forgive sin. And it's very important for us to remember that even Jesus' own miracles were often a, a, a visible evidence of his invisible authority and power. We see in the Acts, in Acts that the miracles performed by the apostles, they serve a dual purpose. They are, first of all, a, a genuine working of compassion and help for a person who is in need. All right, let's not, not miss like so the underlying purposes and so on of what's going on in these miracles, that they are an act of compassion right there in the moment for the person who receives it. Genuine act of compassion. And secondly, they serve as evidence to the community as a whole of an otherwise invisible reality that the Lord has authority to save. So visible evidence of the Lord's invisible power. Jesus himself uses miracles in that way. In fact, if you remember, Jesus also healed a man who was lame. In Mark chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is explicit about what's going on in this miracle. Here's what he says. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The indication is clear, right? If this dude can tell a lame man to stand up and rise, maybe there's something to what's going on when he says your sins are forgiven. Okay, he's bearing witness to that in his miracles. Let's see how that plays out for us this morning in Acts chapter 9. Again, follow along with me, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. He was, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, then calling the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read and understand your word this morning that we have access to the scriptures that you have afforded this account for us, that it's been handed down to us, that we have it in our language. Lord, we thank you for the account of your scriptures. And Lord, I thank you for the way that you have gifted the church through Luke, inspired by your Holy Spirit to give us an account of the establishment of your church. Lord, it is clear the establishment of your church is upon the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, the work of his atonement, and the reality of his resurrection. Lord, I pray that this morning you would use the moving forward of our story this morning in Acts to establish your church today, that we would be established in that same gospel And that we, Lord, according to your grace and kindness, would see this kind of fruitfulness for all of your church in Brevard County. Or that the people of Brevard County would believe and turn to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What we're going to do is we're going to consider these two sections separately. We're going to consider the two miracles 
To be honest, in many ways, what we're going to do is we're simply going to walk through paying attention to the words that are there, paying attention to the account so that we can actually hear it as a church, so we can hear our history as a church and the way that the Lord is moving the story of the establishment of the church forward. We're going to consider each of these two sections separately, and then we're going to go back and consider very briefly three implications. So let's begin with the healing of Aeneas. Look at verse 32 with me. Now Peter went here and there among them all. He went here and there. All right, that's code word for what Paul was doing when it said that he was going in and out among them. Peter evidently was going here and there. What was he doing here and there? He was going with the gospel. That's what an apostle does. He's a witness to Jesus Christ. He's about the work that Paul was about in, earlier in the chapter. He's about the work that the disciples were about as they were sent out of Jerusalem in persecution, going here and there, finding homes for themselves, but also preaching the gospel. That's why when Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the others show up in these towns, there's disciples there. It's not just the people who moved. It's the people as they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going here and there with the gospel. Let's not miss this in a section of Scripture that has two miracles right next to each other, that the primary ministry of the Gospels, uh, of, of the Apostles, is the same as the primary ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of Mark, it says that Jesus was going town to town. Yes. And it quickly shows that he went to town to town doing and performing miracles. But it says explicitly that his primary ministry was the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is a proclaimer and the one who purchases the very thing that he proclaimed in his life, death, and resurrection. In that way, he is different than the apostles, but the apostles are going about as witnesses to Jesus Christ, even as Jesus was a witness to himself. So now Jesus has completed his sacrificial work. He's risen and he reigns over his church from his heavenly throne and his apostles, his disciples continue the proclamation and witness to the gospel. That's what it's talking about when it says in verse 32, now Peter went here and there among them all. I think of the commission, right? The commission of Jesus that he gives to his disciples. What does he say? As you are going, go and make disciples. It's this, this, as you are moving, as you are in a place, go and make disciples. Now, let's continue the story. Verse 33, there in Lydda, he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. We've seen this a few times in Acts. Peter takes time to notice the man. I mean, he actually saw him there. I won't spend a long time on this because it's a, it's a bit of a, a place that I tend to go in encouragement for the church. But friends, we have to lift up our eyes or sometimes we need to let our eyes be allowed to go down to see a man lying on a bed, lame. We saw Peter in the temple and he saw someone there and he acted in compassion there. Friends, we have to lift up our eyes. We have to see what's around us. We have to, 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 to allow our hearts to have the compassion that the gospel has put there. But friends, we can have all the compassion in our heart that the Lord would put there, but if we don't lift up our eyes to see, what are we going to do with it? Lift up our eyes. He took the time to see a man bedridden for eight years, and Peter noticed 
him. The story continues, verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Jesus Christ heals you. This is so important. It's so like memorize that, make that a life verse right there. Jesus is the healer, all right? Peter is not the healer. You and I, in our ministry, in our gospel proclamation, we are not the healer. There's a little phrase, and I get what it's getting at, so, so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying if I ever heard you say this or if you ever heard me say this, we've said something completely wrong. But this little phrase that says that we need to go out and live the gospel. It can't. It's already been done. And unless I intend to die on a cross and have lived a, a perfectly righteous life up until that point and then rise from the dead on the third day in atonement for sinners, I can't live the gospel. I can live the implications of the gospel as God does that work in me by his Holy Spirit. I can go and preach the gospel, but I can't live the gospel. Here's why. Jesus is the worker. He is the performer of the gospel. He is the authority and the power that is behind any healing that might take place, whether it's in the body or in the soul. Jesus Christ heals you. Peter is explicit. The purpose of the miracles is to bear witness to Jesus, Jesus' power to save, his authority to forgive sins. It is not done to bring attention to Peter. And I have to think that's why Peter was able to go about with such great confidence. He knew who Jesus was. Whatever Peter is doing here, it's about Jesus, not Peter. Now, there's an error. It often shows up in the church. It's an error that rears its head often among the most desperate and those who need the most compassion. A person claims to be a healer. Sure, that healer may or may not make some reference to Jesus or some out-of-context scripture, but there is a distinct sense that the man himself is a healer that he has some great gift in himself of being a healer. But we see in Peter's own words, I mean, this is the apostle Peter, right? Peter's own words, Jesus Christ is the healer. Peter is a messenger. He's a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. The saddest thing about that whole scenario is the compassion that's so often needed in the cases where someone goes about claiming to be a healer is the very compassion that's actually withheld. Because the greatest gift of compassion that Peter or Paul or any disciple could ever give, whether the person is healed or not, is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any conversation, any ministry, that talks about healing and does not talk about forgiveness in sin in Jesus Christ alone is not compassion. It doesn't talk about, as we'll look at compassion in just a moment, it doesn't talk about the compassionate one who came and suffered with us and for us. And then you have this little phrase, rise and make your bed. 
Now, my kids aren't bedridden for eight years, but they're bedridden for about eight hours. And I know that the word is to go in there, rise and make your bed. All right. I think the point of this is very simply, you're not going to be needing that for a while. You're not going to lie in there all day. Rise up. You've been healed. Continue to allow the story to move forward. Verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, just a little note, little note about that little word. It's one of the really important words of Scripture, that word all. It's, this is a wonderful place for us to see that the word all is not a technical word in the Scriptures. It's, it's not the word all in the sense of a technical use that it means every single, each and every individual one. It's the word all the way that we tend to use it, right? All the kids came to church this morning. All the team played great. The whole game was just nothing but excellent performance, right? It's, it's speaking the way that we speak, and it's right here. And often it's used in that way in the scriptures. Just take that, walk with it, and the discern whether or not the word is being used in a technical sense or in this more conversational sense. And here all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. There was a great number on that day. And there is a tremendous encouragement for us here. We'll come back to this later. But the central purpose of this passage, I think, is actually this line, a line that's actually repeated at the end of the next miracle. Luke, who is the author of Acts, is moving forward the account of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem into the world. And in today's passage, the gospel comes with power to Lydda and to Joppa. One commentator says in Lydda and Joppa, they saw the Lord's divine authority and saving power on display in this miracle. These people saw the divine authority and saving power of the Lord, and they turned to the Lord, and the church increased, and the number of witnesses increased in those cities. Now, let's turn to the next episode, a little bit longer episode. We're given a few more details in this one with the raising of Tabitha or Dorcas. In verse 36, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. It means just a, simply a kind of deer or gazelle or some animal like that. Joppa was now well into Greek territory. Peter, who we know as the apostle to the Jews, right, is the center of of his ministry centering in Jerusalem, is now well into Greek territory, 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem, along the coast. We've seen in recent weeks that that Paul is the one who is called by Jesus himself to be a minister among the Gentiles. But here we see that he's not alone in the work. And what Acts is doing, what Luke is doing, and beginning with these two stories, he's opening up a bit of a narrative that's going to continue for a few chapters about the way that Peter himself is seeing the nature of the ministry and the effectiveness of the gospel among the Gentiles. This is a theme that will continue for a number of chapters. In large part, these episodes set those up. They serve as a a sort of, of cliffhanger for us to wait as we'll see in just a few moments. Look at verse 36 with me. So moves forward. She was full of good works 
and acts of charity. This disciple named Tabitha or Dorcas is full of good works and acts of charity. We seen the number of times during the course of Acts that these generosity and compassion is, is held up in esteem by Luke in Acts. The generosity of Tabitha is particularly touching as we will see when we, when we see this collection of widows mourning Tabitha's death. In verse 37, it says, In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. She became ill and died. I appreciate the respect that's being shown for this woman. Even after her death, a great deal of respect. This time, this time of grieving is not only to allow for the preparation of her body for burial, it also gives the people who were around her an opportunity to mourn, to grieve, and to celebrate her life. There's a tremendous amount of respect for this woman in this passage. Now, during this time of mourning, the disciples in Joppa send for Peter. That's verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. If you're familiar with the story of the raising of Lazarus, you can't help but notice that there's a little bit of a similarity taking place here. I mean, what is Peter supposed to do? In this case, the woman has died, and she's being prepared for her burial in an upper room. I suppose, really, he's just being invited there to to be a part of the funeral of of a wonderful, compassionate, generous woman? Well, we see in verse 39 that Peter rose, and he went with them. I wonder what news Peter heard about Tabitha, that he would rise from his ministry in one town and go now to this place. It, it seems as you we move forward that the Lord is at work in placing Peter right where he wants him. And if you look at the second half of verse 39, when they arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. When Peter arrives, he finds two things. He finds Tabitha dead, right? She's dead and she's lying dead in an upper room, being prepared for her burial. But he finds something else, and it's an incredible image. I want you to allow yourself to sit in for a moment. He finds a collection of widows and their mourning. And they're remembering the sacrifice and love of Tabitha. I want you to picture a life well lived in service to God. And, and I can just see these widows. They've, they've got all the stuff. They've got all the garments and the clothing that she had made. And they're, they're showing Peter, look, she made this for me. And this is something that she made for someone in our community. Just evidence of a life lived in the light of Jesus Christ and compassion and generosity. Carry that picture with you. This morning, the impact that the Lord can have in a life who has received his compassion and his generosity that overflows in gratitude and generosity to others. Look at verse 40 with me. But Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. What Peter 
does here is so reverent. We've already seen the respect and reverence that is, is given in this situation here. Peter is now careful and he's Christ-centered. Peter knows that he does not have the power to do anything to this woman. Peter is not a miracle worker, even though he has performed mighty miracles. That doesn't make him a mighty miracle worker. In and of himself, Peter can do nothing. And so he acts in a way that might be considered both cautious and deliberate. It's one thing to tell a crippled man, stand up and walk. I mean, that, that is one thing, right? It's a pretty big deal. It's another thing to tell a dead woman to rise. And so he clears the room. And he prays. He kneels down. He humbles himself before Jesus, before he speaks to a corpse. I think that speaks for itself. It's, it's amazing that there's a humility there. There's a power that is at work, and it is not Peter. Here, but friends, that is the very definition of gospel ministry. I remember very early in this church plant, we were still at the Holiday Inn, and I was getting ready to preach, just, just like you guys preach. When, you're, when you have a neighbor that you've been praying for, when you have a child or a loved one or a coworker that you just long to trust in Jesus, and you're doing your best to share on that morning. I was doing my best to share with a small congregation. Back then, we all showed up on time. It was great. And, um, okay, some of us showed up on time. It was great. And it's time to come out and preach. And, and I, I, just, I just told God, as I was standing back, I'm not doing it. I can't do it this morning. I was ready. And all the notes back then, man, my notes were like 10 pages long. And, and it still was about the same length of time I just read it. I was ready for the morning. I knew what the sermon was going to be. And it was what I came ready with. But I said, I'm not doing it, God. I can't do it. And you know it. Why would you, and John's finishing the song before I'm supposed to come up and preach. Why would you ask me? to do something that you know I cannot do. In fact, nobody can. I'm going to go out there and, and, and speak to dead and hardened hearts, and I'm supposed to tell them to rise up in faith and live. You know I can't do that. And I'll tell you, that, that memory has carried with me over and over again. Because in remembering in that moment, that's right, you can't do that. I remember the truth of the scriptures, and Peter can't tell a woman to rise and have her rise of his own authority. But the Lord has sent him, and he sent you, and he sent us as gospel ministers to humble ourselves before Jesus. And I would just wonder, did Peter say, I can't do this one. The other one was crazy, but this is nuts. <laughs> I can't do this one. And then we stand up take people by the hand, we preach the gospel, and we tell the dead to live. We preach the gospel to a people who are hopeless like ourselves. We remember the miracle that God worked in us when a weak and fumbling person shared the gospel with us, and faith sprung up, and there was life in a dead man and a dead woman. And we preach the gospel. This is what Jesus does in the presence of 
witnesses, his church. And you know what happened? I mean, it's like, it's part of the, the same verse, right? She opened her eyes. I mean, like somewhere between Tabitha arise and she opened her eyes, a miracle happened. I'm not a miracle worker and neither are you, but the Lord Jesus is and he did it. Do you believe that he would do that? That he would do the impossible to cause the one who is spiritually actually dead to rise? When you preach the gospel, she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Jesus is continuing to show his power over life and death, and now he's establishing the authority of the apostles and their teaching as the apostles' teaching, taught to them by Jesus himself, is spreading through their ministry. And in verse 41, the the humility and the respect continues for this woman. He gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. He gave her his hand, raises her up, and presents her alive in a careful, humble, deliberate action. In verse 42, we're told it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. Again, again, this is the main point of the passage. Luke is moving forward the story of the growth of the church in the presence of the proclamation of the gospel and the display of the power of God in authority over all things and certainly these visible realities of the invisible reality that these people's sins are forgiven. The gospel actually works to make these spiritually dead actually alive. And then at the end of this passage, we have just this little note. I've observed this in watching shows, especially on Netflix. You might know what I'm talking about when you're watching episode after episode, that the story's done, right? Like it's completely resolved and you could turn it off, but like there's like one more little section and you're like wondering what this is. And really all it's there is, is it's actually a preview of the next show in story form. And it's just there to make you want to watch another episode. Well, that's what this verse is. Now we might not catch it, but the original readers saw this. Verse 33, he stayed in Joppa for many days. Okay, it's just a nice little resolution, right? With one Simon, a tanner. It's a sort of a cliffhanger ending that we might miss. It's there to whet our appetites for a passage that is to coming. We're told that Peter stayed with a tanner. And there's a problem because tanners handle the dead flesh of animals. And such touching of dead animals was considered to be unclean for a Jew like Peter. And he stayed in his house. But God is going to show Peter something in that house that is something about his mission in the world. Now I did to you what Netflix did, so come back next week and we'll talk all about it. We'll go there, we'll look at chapter 10. I hope that you won't wait till next week to read it and consider the way that the Lord is working among the Gentiles to this day. He is bringing his salvation to the world. But this morning, I just want to very briefly consider three implications of this passage, very briefly. The first one, it's not the main point of the passage. I don't claim it is, but it's so present in the passage and in all the works of the miracles of the scriptures, and it is a call to compassion. 
It's a call to compassion. We see the beauty of compassion in the midst of gospel-centered ministry. At the beginning and the end of this passage, we see the central purpose of Peter is the preaching of the gospel. If it wasn't the preaching of the gospel, how is everyone turning to the Lord and being saved? Right? The central purpose of Peter in these cities was to preach the gospel. He's going from town to town, bearing witness, and the result is people believe in the name of Jesus. But as Peter went, and as he was going, preaching the gospel, he went with compassion. We'll put it this way. Compassion is the posture of the gospel minister. The content of the gospel minister is itself compassion, but the content of the gospel minister is the proclamation of the gospel. And friends, to be clear, I'm not talking about preachers. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. The posture of partners together in the gospel is compassion. As we go, we see people who are lame. We see people who bring great grief to those when they are lost. We see Tabitha. We see the way that he was gentle with her. And he mourned with those who mourned. There is a posture of compassion that we see in, on display with the Apostle Peter in this passage. It's a posture of the gospel minister. The, the message which we bear witness to is the greatest love and compassion the world has ever seen or imagined. It's the love of God who gave his beloved son to rescue the utterly lost and bring us life. Friends, that's the definition of compassion. We can't preach that gospel and not be shaped into the posture of its implications for everyday life. Compassion as the posture of the gospel minister. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. Co and passion. Passion, suffer, co, with. What a beautiful display of the gospel. We don't merely suffer with. We have a genuine hope to share when we sidle up next to those who suffer. Consider the compassion and ministry of Tabitha. Hold in your mind again the, the widows still clinging to the garments she had made, and they're weeping at her loss. And the implication for us is, is so clear. We, what if we suffered with in such a way? What if we drew next to in compassion that if we were to ever leave, there would be a genuine loss, a real and genuine loss? I remember just reflecting over my own call into this form of gospel ministry that God has called me into, and I thought, what, what's my vision? What's the, what's the purpose? What's the steps? What's the strategy of the gospel minister? And it, it became clear to me that it's really three things. It's to preach and to teach, yes. It's to preach and to teach. But the third is so important because it's the posture of the one who preaches and teaches. To come alongside of with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach and to teach and to come alongside of with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a posture of compassion, of suffering with that is necessary for the church. There's much ministry that becomes institutional. 
And while it does genuinely serve, and it ought to serve, we need institutional serving in the community. But at the same time, institutional serving can can lose a sense of compassion. So here's what the institutional service opportunities that are in the community need. They need someone to show up and just be there in the midst of it. Someone at a soup kitchen who doesn't just serve the food. Oh, somebody needs to serve the food, right? But then we need compassion to show up and eat the food next to and to go home with and invite into your home. That's where compassion begins. When we get to know, when we share meals, when we pray with, when a tear is in our eyes because we feel it and we saw it because we were suffering with. May our prayer be that our compassion would become through the proclamation of the gospel, something that we can do together as brothers and sisters together, that we can suffer together and we can go to where there is suffering together. It's the first implication that we would go with compassion. The second, the mission to go. The ongoing movement of the gospel deeper into the cities. I'll mention again that the primary purpose, the actual purpose of these episodes is the scope of Luke in Acts is to move the story forward of the proclamation of the gospel among the Gentiles. The apostles were commissioned with that ministry. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, but you were You will receive, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my what? Witnesses, right? Gospel proclamation. This is a ministry that continues in the church to this day. We were never decommissioned for this ministry. It remains our commission to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I call you, church, to continue in this labor with this posture of compassion. We call you, church, to continue. And may we consider even this morning, if there is somewhere else that we must go, the mission to go. Peter had to go to Lydda, had to be called to Joppa. Is there a here and there to which we ought to be sent? Is there a neighborhood? I'm asking you a question. Think with me. Is there a neighborhood Is there a community? Is there a subculture or a marginalized in this county that we need to go with the good news and with a posture of compassion? I'll tell you, I can't answer that question. We need part, we need as partners to constantly being praying over the question that the gospel would go deeper into our county. One of the things that I love is that I have seen people in the congregation begin to notice an answer to that question. And I've watched you begin to bring your community group into that question. And I've watched you begin to bring friends, brothers and sisters into the answers to that question as you go in mission in this county. Lord willing that we would go deeper in gospel ministry, that the, the, the two lines at the ends of these two passages would be true among us, that there would be those who are turning to Jesus in our communities. Third implication, the encouragement of growth. 
In both the passages, the theme is the people turning to the Lord in faith. We've already spoken about that a number of times. The accounts are short. There's not a great deal of details regarding the supporting action of the passage. The purpose is not to give a a detailed account of healings and so on, but rather to put three things on display. To put on display the ongoing witness of the church, the ongoing power of, of God and the continued growth of the church in the conversion of the lost. And so let us be encouraged this morning by the power and authority of Jesus to save. I want to share with you maybe a cause for a need for encouragement. As I watch Crosspoint Coast, as I consider who we are, I, I, I see in myself and in you a people who are in great need of the gospel. And as the gospel has been ministered among us, many from the first day that we began to minister the gospel together, as, as, as you began to hear the gospel and to receive it as someone sidled up next to you in compassion and preached the gospel there that held you accountable for sin and at the same moment preached the reality of a need for grace, that many here knew much about the gospel before you came, but you've participated with us and there has been tremendous growth and a genuine healing taking place in your lives. I rejoice in that. And at the same time, now for seven and a half years, I and many others have labored in prayer. Lord God, there are people we haven't met. There are people that we are already laboring among in which we do not yet see the fruit of conversion and turning to Christ. Friends, this passage I see as encouragement because I'm told here that the Lord has the power to save. I would suggest that there are two things for us out of that encouragement. We need to share more the story of the power of God to save. We need to not be so private about the ways that God has miraculously transformed our hearts from death to life. That's not the gospel. We already covered that. You can't do the gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel. It is the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, right? And it's power to save as it's proclaimed in the individual heart. But friends, as those stories take place, we need to bear witness to them in our households, in our communities, in our community groups, and in the church. And secondly, we need to continue to go. I know that some of you have been laboring in places and among particular people. You have sidled up and suffered with some people and you just are longing for fruit. You see little glimpses here and there, but you're longing, Lord, Lord, let them turn away from the thing that keeps destroying them and turn in faith to you that they might receive the grace that I have received. Friend, continue. Continue. Because I read here in this text that the gospel has the power to save. And so we labor on. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment we would do as Peter did, that we would kneel and pray, that we would be humbled to say, as we're tempted to say, I'm not doing it, I can't do it, it won't work. And there's something that's right about that, and there's something that's a great deal of pride. But I pray that you would humble us today to See, Lord, that you are powerful, you are able. That <laughs> The fact that you saved us is an absolute miracle, a death-to-life miracle. 
Lord, if you would save me, certainly you could save my neighbor. You could save my coworker. You could save my child or my parent. And you could save the people I haven't yet met, but you are beginning to put on my heart to go to. Lord, I pray that we would go together, that we'd be a people of compassion, and that you've purchased the means of our compassion because we can suffer loss in this world and lose nothing insofar as we have Christ. Lord, I pray that the church would be encouraged this morning and that the story that's moving forward in Acts would move forward also here as we see deeper and deeper in our county people being saved, turning to the Lord. Lord, we pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, the one who is powerful to save. Amen.